Well, one of uh, my boys' favorite books when they were much younger, and uh, if you have young kids, and I know a lot of you do, I'm guessing you've read the book, uh, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. If you haven't uh, read that book, then maybe you've read what was, ended up to be our, our favorite, which is uh, If You Give a Moose a Muffin. I'm a big moose and muffin fan. Uh, that book uh, was read several times in our home. And so if you haven't, by, by whatever reason, have not read to your kids or with your kids, if you give a mouse a cookie or if you give a moose a muffin, the, the whole idea of, of the book is that uh, if you give a moose a muffin, then he's going to end up wanting jam to go with it. And then uh, if he gets jam with it, then he's going to want another muffin. And then the book kind of uh, goes into all these crazy scenarios uh, that the moose ends up putting tons and tons of burdens on this boy uh, just because you gave him a muffin. And so chaos ensues in this book because you gave a moose a muffin, but he wanted so much more. Maybe an appropriate follow-up book, and as we consider this text this morning, is uh, If You Give a Pharisee a Law. If you give a Pharisee a law, he's going to end up wanting more and more. It's going to add more burdens and eventually lead to chaos. And what happens is you end up far away from the intent of the law giving itself. I think we're going to see how some of that manifests itself in our text this morning. So grateful that you are here worshiping at City Church. If, if you are new, we are actually in the middle of uh, a series in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to spend the next several months, actually, slowly and methodically walking with Jesus in this Gospel. But right now, we're in the middle of... Uh, Five conflict stories with the Pharisees and religious leaders. So last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, which two stories, both of those stories, Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees. The the first one, if you remember, is that he uh, forgave the sins of the paralytic man. His friends bring uh, them, uh, him to Jesus, and Jesus says the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin. And, of course, the Pharisee only had one paradigm, and that is uh, only God can forgive sins. And so instead of thinking in that moment, maybe this is God in the flesh, they call Jesus a blasphemer. And then the second story was uh, that Jesus would dare eat with the unclean, that he eats with tax collectors and sinners, and that the Pharisees and religious leaders scoffed at that and couldn't imagine a scenario in which you would leave yourself open to being unclean by eating with the unclean. We said last week that Jesus is the heart doctor. He is the one who knows our hearts, who heals our hearts, but he he heals the hearts of those who humble themselves to acknowledge that they need the heart doctor, that Jesus is healing the ones that know that they are sick. But the ones that don't think that they're sick, the ones who think they're actually quite fine, quite healthy, uh, what Jesus would say, I did not come to heal the righteous, the righteous being the ones that are denying the gospel of grace in their lives. And the Pharisees, uh, in the text this morning, embody that type of thinking. So today we're going to look at the last three conflict stories in this section of Mark. And as we read, as, as you heard, these conflict stories today are going to be centering around uh, Jewish disciplines of fasting and observing the Sabbath. Right there in the middle of our text, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at the end there or in uh, chapter 2 beginning in verse 21, 
21 and 22, Jesus gives us real quick, uh, two quick parables. One about uh, this cloth, this untrunk cloth, and then another parable about wine. And I, I want to zero in on this parable, the second one in verse 22, about wine and wineskins. What is Jesus talking about here? I'll just tell you right up, right up front that Jesus in this parable is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the new wine. Something new is here. Jesus himself is the new wine. His gospel of grace is the new wine. And religion, this works-based righteousness, this legalism, is the old wine or the old wine skins. And that might be a little bit foreign to us when we hear about wineskins. When we have wine today, they're in glass bottles. That's, that's how, more than likely, if you partake in wine, you have a bottle of wine, you pour it into a glass. But back in this time, uh, so often, their, their wine would be stored in the skin of sheep or goats. And so as the skin aged, it became more and more brittle. And so what Jesus is saying, that if you pour new wine into brittle old wineskins, the new wine would ferment and all the, the gases and the bubbles that was going on expanded. And if you put that in the old wineskins, those wineskins, because they're brittle and old, would burst apart. And so Jesus is saying something new is here and it doesn't fit with what's currently happening. Something new is here. Now, this is, a, I think, an appropriate summary of what's happening in the entire Gospel of Mark. So Jesus is giving us these two parables in the context of fasting, but I think its implications go far beyond just fasting. It's really the summary of the kingdom of God manifesting itself on earth in the midst of hardened, dried-up hearts, particularly of these religious leaders. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you the main idea. And this morning, the main idea is straight out of the mouth of Jesus. I don't think I could have thought of a better way of summarizing what he is wanting us to see here. And the main idea is new wine is for fresh wineskins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Now these stories show us that uh, Jesus did not come to do away with fasting or do away with observing the Sabbath. That's not at all what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing instead is revolutionizing fasting and observing the Sabbath. He's not saying don't do it anymore. He's wanting us to point, he's wanting us to see that the whole point of fasting, the whole point of observing Sabbath rest was him, that he was at the center of all of this. And besides missing the point, uh, really the Pharisees went beyond what the Old Testament said about fasting. They, they added several new regulations to fasting. They, they fasted every Monday and Thursday, for example. In the, in the Old Testament, the only really prescribed fast was on the Day of Atonement, which was that one day of, of the year where the high priest would sacrifice the, the bull and the goats to atone for the people's sin. That was the only official prescribed fast in the Old Testament. 
Uh, But the Pharisees had added to that. They fasted on Monday and Thursday. It seems from the text that the disciples of John were also doing regular fasts. And we know if we read the Gospel of Matthew, for example, that Jesus was not against fasting. He even in Matthew talks about how to fast. And he said, you know, if you fast, don't walk around with the scowls on your face looking gloomy and disfigured like the Pharisees. But instead, fast in the secret of your own heart. Fast privately. Jesus is not saying to not fast in this passage, but if you notice, he is saying that there is a time to fast. In the passage, he's saying there, there is going to be a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and that will be the time that my disciples will fast. More on that to come. I want to speak more about that in a minute. Now, we continue with this passage, and, uh, and we, we thought uh, fasting was a big deal to the Pharisees. Then when it came to the Sabbath, they, they kicked it into high gear because observing the Sabbath for the people of God was the premier way of keeping the covenant. Uh, many of you know that the Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It was meant to be a rest from work. It was signifying the rest that God took in creation on the seventh day. It was the rest brought about the, uh, in the redemption of Israel from the slavery in Egypt. It was supposed to be a day of joyful, God-oriented rest. But if you give a Pharisee a law, he'll want a regulation. So for the religious leaders, the, the Sabbath became less about rest and more about what not to do. This was, this was supposed to be a great day of, of joyful, satiated time with God. But the Pharisees, actually, uh, in, in reading this week and studying for this passage, they actually added uh, 39 regulations to Sabbath keeping. 39 regulations. Some of those uh, regulations prohibited acts like, here's a quote, taking anything from one place to another. I don't even know what that means. That literally means if I pick something up, take it from here to over there, that according to some Pharisees, that would be a violation of the Sabbath. Here's another regulation. Carrying children was not allowed. Well, how many of us would be, like, violating the law this morning and carrying our babies into this place? You were forbidden to set a broken bone on the Sabbath. Can you imagine Someone uh, falls into a pit, breaks their leg, and you really have to say, if you're going to abide by these regulations, I'm not setting that bone today, I'll do it tomorrow, because today is a day of rest. Another violation was reaping in the fields. The, The Pharisees said that if you reaped grain in the field, you were working and you were violating the Sabbath. But what they're accusing Jesus and his disciples uh, here in uh, verses uh, 23 and 24, as, as he uh, is accusing Jesus as, and his disciples, he's insinuating that they are reaping in the field and violating the Sabbath. But in reality, what we read is that they were simply walking along, taking uh, the heads of grain in their hands and eating them, which would have been allowed. If you read the Old Testament, that would have been allowed on the Sabbath. 
Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, the way Jesus responds in verse 25 is not at all what the Pharisees would have thought. It's not at all what, what we would have thought. I, I would have just assumed that Jesus would have said, I'm not violating the Sabbath. We're allowed to do this. I'm not reaping. You've added all these regulations to the Sabbath, and this is allowed. But instead, he, he turns everything on its head because he tells them to remember this story from actual, uh, actually 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you want this week to read that story in 1 Samuel, you can. Uh, it's a story of David and his men who are at the time uh, fleeing Saul. If you've read your Old Testament, you remember that David is on the run so much in the book of Samuel from Saul. And he goes to the priest and in the priest, or in the temple, the priest gives David and his men who are with him the bread of presence to eat. And we read in this text that that was not allowed because only the priests were allowed to eat this bread. Now, why does Jesus tell this story? It's, it seems like it comes out of the blue. Why, why are you telling the story about David? What he's doing is not saying that a breaking law is okay. He's not saying uh, because David did it, anyone can break the law. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm the better David. He's comparing himself to David. David, as we know, is Israel's greatest king up to this point. And we know the people of God knew that uh, from the line of David would, would come the future Messiah. And Jesus is saying that David's actions with this bread of presence is anticipating. It's a preview of what Jesus would do when he came. He would be bursting old wineskins and reorienting the Sabbath around himself. And he says there in the text that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the, the new high priest and divine king. He's the son of David. He's the son of man. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And it said that the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man to bless man, not to heap burdens onto him. Another regulation that the Pharisees put on, on the Sabbath was that unless your life was in danger, then you were not to heal. Just like setting that broken bone meant that your life wasn't necessarily in danger, so we're going to put that off until tomorrow. And in a very similar way, if you were sick, if there was something wrong with you, and the Pharisees deemed that it wasn't life-threatening, then you weren't allowed to heal on the Sabbath. And so that's why they're looking at Jesus with this man with a withered hand. Uh, some commentators think they actually planted this man in, in the synagogue so that they would test Jesus to see if he would heal this man's hand, which it wasn't life-threatening. It wasn't life-threatening, but the lack of compassion, the unmoved heart of the Pharisees grieve Jesus to the core. And we see Jesus asking him this question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And we read that their answer is no answer at all, but they are silent in the face of what seems to be a real understandable question. Like if you had any type of compassion, you would say, of course it's lawful to do good, of course it's lawful uh, to heal and to bring life. But their hearts are as withered as this man's hand, it would seem. And so, yes, Jesus is grieved into anger. So you can imagine 
that during the Sabbath, as the Pharisees are, are walking around, as they are observing Jesus, observing the people that are around Jesus, that they are hearing cries all the time of hurting people. They're seeing sick people. They're seeing needy people, but they are, instead of moving toward such people with compassion, they are in favor of being by the books, thinking about rules, checking self-created boxes. They've made up these things altogether, what it means to observe the Sabbath. And in doing so, they're revealing themselves to be old wineskins. But Jesus is pouring the new wine. And even in this passage, Jesus is pouring new wine. And he asks the man, he says, give me your hand. Man stretches his hand out and Jesus restores it. Now, we, if we've noticed this, this progression in these conflict stories that we've been talking about is uh, we've moved beyond the, the Pharisees simply questioning Jesus, or even at the very beginning, we, we can even read it as a curiosity, like, what is Jesus doing here? This is odd. What is happening? But in this text, we see the escalation of responses, and now that the Pharisees are actively trying to trap Jesus. We read that explicitly. They're not, they're not playing around. They're trying to trap Jesus, and we see that it uh, ends in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that they want to destroy Jesus. We've moved beyond, what is this, to I'm ready to destroy this man. Now what's curious is that the Pharisees in this text, it mentions that they are meeting with, they hold counsel with the Herodians. Now who are the Herodians? The Herodians were uh, those who aligned themselves with King Herod, who is a wicked Roman king. Uh, the, the Romans set up governors or kings over the different areas in Israel. And so the Herodians were, were very much... Uh, against the Pharisees and vice versa. Pharisees hated the Herodians. These were pagans. These were uh, the ones that were licentious and, and wicked and unclean. And, and here they are, confronted with Jesus, holding counsel with the enemy, so to speak. In other words, the, the hatred of Jesus is incredibly bipartisan. It's another reminder that Jesus and his kingdom has come into a cosmic conflict. We've been talking about this the past several weeks, that Jesus arrives on the scene. He's in this conflict, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. And so often, uh, and maybe we don't uh, think of this as often as we should, but this old dead religion, this works, right, this works righteousness religion is a part of the kingdom of Satan. And this is why religious people sound like the accuser so often. That religious people that sound like the devil himself accusing. This is why what, what vestiges of sin in my heart and in your heart as a believer in God, that we, no matter what we struggle with, if we're, if we're running away from God into licentiousness and indulgence, in sin, or if we are the Pharisee, if we're the one that wants to hold on to rulemaking, whether, whether or not we're this or that or both, which I would argue is happening at all times in the human heart, then Jesus should at some point run up against that in our life. We should, be, we should run up against the reality of the gospel in our life. That's why when we come to church, we should always expect that 
Whatever sin remains in our heart is going to be in conflict with the true Jesus of the Scriptures. Clearly, the the left and the right, the Herodians and the Pharisees are desiring to destroy Jesus. And what's really sad, and here's the theme that keeps coming up over and over again, the people that should have understood this the most, the people who studied the Torah for years and years and years, had all this memorized, should have known who was standing in front of them. They've missed the point altogether. But they should have seen that the the Torah was always pointing to this son of man, this suffering servant. If they read Isaiah, they should have been on the lookout for someone who is a suffering servant, a God-man. He's written on every page of the Bible. But instead of seeing Jesus, they've missed him, and they've missed the whole point of God's word. Instead of reading the Torah and seeing one day there would be this Messiah about whom all this fasting and feasting and resting and obeying and repenting is all about, instead of being devoted to Jesus, they're devoted to rule-keeping and it's a bondage. We see the slavery that they are entrapped in. Following Jesus is not a religion of duty, but a gospel of grace. Not of dead sacrifices, but of living mercy. It's not something that you can measure. It's not something that you can control. It's not about mechanical formalities or technicalities. It's not about burden laying, but burden lifting. The love of God cannot be expressed in 39 regulations or 339,000 regulations, but only through the immeasurable grace of Jesus Christ. And these religious legalists, these Pharisees, are not alive to that reality. They don't see it. They've been blinded. How does this happen? Michael Reeves is a modern-day theologian and professor and author. He has written a book recently called Rejoice and Tremble, which is all about the fear of the Lord. Um, And as we know, as we even talked about it this past summer as we studied the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the right expression, the right description of our worship, about our obedience to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is something to be treasured. But there is a difference between the fear of the Lord and being afraid of God. You know the difference. The fear of the Lord a good and right thing, but being afraid of God is something altogether different. And the Pharisees show themselves to be afraid of God. Listen to what Reeves says here in his book. He says, Yet while this deception-fueled fear of God uh, drives people away from their maker, it does not always drive them away from from religion. It need not even drive them away from apparently impressive morality, religious life, and obedience to the law. Having presented God as harsh and dreadful, this fear gives people the mindset of a reluctant slave who obeys his master, not out of any love, but purely from fear of the whip. Out of slavish fear, people will, will perform all manner of external duties in order to appease a God they secretly despise. We don't have men walking around in 2023 in long robes calling themselves Pharisees. We don't 
see such men out and about, but I would argue, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the Pharisee, the Pharisaical bent, runs through every human heart. We, we must be honest with ourselves. This is why we pay attention to a text like this. It's why it's so easy for us, from where we are right now, to go, I'm not a Pharisee. Those were men back then. We don't have that anymore. These guys are the bad guys. These guys are the ones that didn't get Jesus. I get Jesus. I get him. But I would argue that the Pharisee runs through every human heart. And what is that thread that runs from the Pharisees into our own legalistic tendencies or bents? What is it? It's that we're afraid of God. It's that we're afraid of this fictional God that we've created in our own mind. We're afraid of this taskmaster God, this one who is harsh, this one who is not loving, the one that always has a frown on his face, the one is sitting in the corner with his arms folded, waiting us waiting for us to get our act together, that is the God in our mind that we secretly despise and yet we're afraid of him. And so what do we do? Well, we tend to do godly things. I mean, we're church folk, right? Here we are. We tend to do godly things. We do great things. But inside, we're in turmoil. Inside, we're a mess. We're anxious. We're afraid of this angry God that is at any moment's notice ready to swat us, to whip us. This is what leads to white-knuckling all the way through life. This is what leads us to either say out loud or think in our mind, if I just follow these rules, if I just do X, then Y, and Z, and then I can appease God. Then he's going to be pleased with me. This is behind the question that we constantly ask ourselves, am I doing this right? Am I doing this Christian thing right? Am I doing it right? When we are doing more calculating than celebrating, when we're doing more evaluation than enjoyment, when we're doing more than loving, And because we're attempting to justify ourselves, that's essentially what the Pharisees are desiring to do. We want to justify ourselves. I've got to do these things in order to be good with God. And when we do that among a crowd, when we do that amongst one another, what we do is end up creating this list of things to do and not do, things to uh, move toward, things to avoid, and then we sneer at others that don't adhere to that list. Can you feel the, the pride that begins to rise up with, within us, that pride that leads us to say, I'm, I'm better than those people. I'm better than those people. Maybe I wouldn't say that out loud, but in my heart, I would say I'm better than those people who voted that way. I'm better than those people who send their kids to that school. I'm better than those people who live in that neighborhood. Or I might think God is not pleased with that person reading that author. God is not pleased with the way that mother feeds her baby. Why is she doing that? On and on and on. And can you feel it rise up within you? Maybe, maybe I'm the only one. It leads, it leads to saying or thinking something like, you're not serious about blank if you blank. You're not, you're not serious about your faith if you listen to that. 
You're not really serious. You're not serious about the Sabbath, Rabbi. You're not really serious about this Sabbath. You're, you're plucking heads of grain with your disciples. You're not serious about this. And we know if we really observe all the things going on around us, around us and within our own heart, we know this happens uh, politically on the left and right. There's no way to avoid it. It's the traditional values of a conservative. It's the progressive values of a liberal. It's happening all around us. When you're around such a person, you feel more scrutinized than loved. When you're around a Pharisee, you're, you're not going to receive love. You're going to receive scrutiny. And it's because that person sees God as being more scrutinizing than loving. The Pharisee is not going to feel that God loves them. They're going to feel that God is scrutinizing them. All of this is fundamentally breaking down at the level of what the law was appointed to do. That the summary of all the law is love God and love others. And yet, here we are not seeing the point of the law. Here we are seeing all that breaking down. And then there's uh, not only that's not what's happening, but then there's just a feel to, to being a Pharisee. Whether it's ourselves or whether uh, those around us, there's this feel that we even see in this passage. If we hear this passage, surely we notice that there's a lot of joylessness, there's paranoia, there's anger, there's cynicism, there's anxiety. And yet, the Christian should be the most joyful, restful, whole person in the entire world. Because we don't serve a harsh taskmaster. That is not who our God is. That's not who our God is. And I, I will say this hopefully every week that we cannot forget in the Gospel of Mark and in any point of the Bible that, that we as believers in God are caught up in this eternal love story of a father loving his son. That's who we primarily are. We are children of God with a loving father. We cannot move past that. We have to return to that in our hearts over and over again. That we are in this story of a father eternally loving his son. I want to back up. I said that we would have more on this later. I, I want to return to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, because I didn't really talk about uh, Jesus referring to this bridegroom and this wedding feast. But go ahead and look with me at chapter 2, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. When you're with Jesus, you, you feast, when, uh, you revel, you party, you are at a wedding. And fasting, Jesus is saying in this text, fasting is not appropriate until the bridegroom is taken away. What, it, what in the world does that mean? When is the bridegroom taken away? We know, the disciples didn't know at this time, but we know in this side of history, on this side of the cross, it is the cross. That, that Jesus is the bridegroom and he was taken away and hung on a cross. And so the cross is casting its shadow 
over this passage. In fact, the cross is, is casting its shadow throughout the whole Bible. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is why we've been talking about that this is a kingdom that is through the cross. It's by way of the cross. And so when will the bridegroom be taken and delivered up? On the cross. The cross happening on the ultimate day of atonement. So here is our king. Here is Jesus, who we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, coming, preaching a gospel of repentance and faith, saying, believe the gospel and repent. So this is the way into the kingdom. This is Jesus, who has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and revolutionize the Torah. This is the one who has brought shalom back to earth, who is healing diseases and restoring withered hands and casting out demons, bringing shalom. This is Jesus, who in every instance has chosen good and life over evil and death perfectly at all times and he was sent to die our king was sent to die on the cross for you and for me and if we're honest when we read the account of the crucifixion what what looks like is happening in that moment when Jesus is hanging there on the cross, it looks like in that moment that the old wine and the old wineskins are here to stay. It looks like the old wine prevails. But if we look closer, we know that the cross is where the new wine, the blood of the lamb, is poured out. And the old wineskins are ripped apart in that moment, just like the curtain separating all people from the presence of God. Jesus is the new wine. Because of this gospel of grace, immense grace, because of the gospel of grace, now it is possible that if you give a Pharisee Jesus, he'll humble himself and want more Jesus. You see, there's hope for the religious person one of the things I want us to see in this text, as angry and grieved at, as Jesus was at the Pharisees, is that the gospel is for the Pharisee. The gospel is for the one who would humble himself and, and recognize that he is sick and needs the heart doctor, that needs Jesus to come in and pour new wine into fresh wineskins. I, I don't want us to be, what, what I can see happening so often in my heart is what one pastor calls uh, becoming a grace Pharisee. Do you know what I mean by that? Is that I become a grace Pharisee when I look at the Pharisees and go, I'm so thankful I'm not like that guy, a Pharisee, and I'm self-righteous about their self-righteousness. I don't want to be a grace Pharisee. The gospel is for all of us. Jesus is the new wine family. He is not just our new wine. He is our Sabbath rest. It's what he was saying. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. He is the new temple. He's the new bread of presence. We call him the bread of life. Now we are royal priests. If we've been reading along in 1 Peter, we're part of a royal priesthood who can hunger for bread. We can go into the temple, eat the bread of life, and be rested. And in his love, we're pouring new wine into fresh wineskins. So let me, let me end our time with a little bit of application for us. And I think the application could be in this realm of if there's new wine, 
Jesus, the gospel, being poured into fresh wineskins. And if we are such fresh wineskins receiving and ingesting and being embodied by the new wine, what is that going to look like for you and me? What is it going to look like for City Church to be fresh wineskins? How do we move from trying to earn God's favor through rule following to obeying Jesus wholeheartedly obeying Jesus out of love, knowing that we've been freely and fully forgiven forever. How do we move toward being fresh wineskins? Well, first, we are fresh wineskins of rejoicing because we're not just guests at a wedding party. We're the bride. Man, it's one thing to be a guest at a wedding And especially a wedding back in this day, which lasted days and days, a lot of partying, a lot of feasting and wine and celebrating. That was really fun if you were a guest, but what about if you're the bride? And that's who we are, family. So we feast. We feast. We feast organically in our homes. Uh, So many of you do that, inviting people in. Maybe you feast in your discipleship group each week. We feast here. We even build in a rhythm here at City Church that once a month in a couple of weeks we'll have a feast. I know a lot of you have been a part of that. We want to feast because we're, we're, with, we're with him. We're with the bridegroom. So we're going to feast. And yet we, we have this practice of fasting. And one of the reasons we have it is because we're not physically with him. Yes, we are supernaturally united to Jesus Christ in a mystery that far eludes my ability to understand. And yet we know that one day we'll physically be reunited with the bridegroom. And until that day, we occasionally fast. We'll even do that tomorrow as a church. We'll fast tomorrow, but let us never forget that even that when we are fasting, we are still feasting on him. We're we're fresh wineskins of resting We practice worshiping and singing and fellowshipping and enjoying the true Sabbath rest, which is Jesus himself. And so here we come into this place on a Sunday, and we're resting from our Monday through Saturday. We're with God's people, gathering with them, hearing his word, eating his supper, all anticipating that great day when his kingdom comes in its fullness. This is the Sabbath rest. That means that even in this moment, even when you stand later and sing, when you come forward to take the Lord's Supper, that what we're meant to see is that even in those things, that should be a greater rest than any nap that you take later on today. And I hope you do take a nap. That's a glorious thing. That's a glorious thing to do on the Sabbath. But do you know that even in this moment, we are resting because we're with him. He is our Sabbath rest. Finally, we are fresh wineskins of restoring. We, like Jesus in this story, are people that should be looking for opportunity to bless others, to bring restoration, to bring care and counsel to hurting people, to exhort people, to encourage people, to call people into repentance. We did that earlier. To repent from our self-righteousness and to forgive We do that in our marriages, in our friendships. We do that with our children as parents. We do that in our neighborhoods. We do that in our city, and we do that in our church. 
This is the fresh wineskin of speaking truth in love. We speak truth and love to withered hearts, and we help to shore up withered hands. This is the body of Christ. This is what we're called to do as fresh wineskins that have received the new wine and that we're seeing that new wine pour into us over and over again all the more each day. What a gift this is for us. What I want to do in the next few moments, there's going to be several minutes worth and a couple of songs worth of you taking time in the quietness of your own heart perhaps, maybe the boldness to speak of any of these things out loud to the people that you came with, to your spouse or a friend. We're going to have uh, Chris and um, we're going to have Chris and Stephanie and Zane and Katie up front to pray with. Would love for this place. What I would love for this time to be is a time of reflection of what God is desiring for you and I to see when it comes to our propensity to be a Pharisee. And even if you, by God's grace, are not struggling in that area, would you just pray for me? Because some of the things that I think about, some of the things that I even say out loud during the week reveal the wickedness in my own heart. Either as a grace Pharisee, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy who is self-righteous to the core. Or as a Pharisee out and out. As someone who might say, I can't believe that person would listen to that or read that. Do they take their faith seriously? That's ugly. It's ugly. I need your prayers. So in this moment, wherever the Spirit is landing on you, would you pray? Pray quietly. Pray with Chris and Stephanie or Zane and Katie up front. And then we will take the Lord's Supper together. So as you feel led in the next couple of songs, come forward and take the cup. And I'll come back later and we'll eat the meal together. The Lord's Supper is the opportunity we have uh, to see in tangible ways and to taste and to smell what Christ has done, the aroma of Christ. We get to feast on the new wine and the bread of life in a real sense that we are acknowledging in the meal what Jesus has done for us by going to the cross and bearing our sin on our behalf. And it's a meal that's meant to point us also to the great wedding feast when he comes back as our bridegroom and we get to celebrate with him forever. If you're a member of God's church, whether it's City Church or any other church, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that meal is for you. Let me pray. Father, we desperately desire to recognize in our own heart where we miss the point where we might be people who read your word and study your word and know all about you, but yet, uh, will you help us to see you? We, will you help us to see that you are a God of compassion, of healing, of restoring, that you are our Sabbath rest, that we feast upon the bread of life, that we ingest the new wine because this is who we are as fresh wineskins. And it's nothing that we could have done. There's no amount of rule following we could do to earn this. We can't earn your favor. You've graciously given us all things in Jesus Christ, our King, who went to the cross to die for us, but has been raised to new life. Hallelujah.
Help us to treasure these things in our heart all the more. We ask in Christ's name, amen.